Welcome to Sacred and Profane. I'm Martine Halverson-Taylor. And I'm Curtis Schaefer. Together with students and faculty here at UVA, we're exploring how religion plays out in our daily lives, in the obvious and in the less obvious ways. How religion influences what and how we think of ourselves as people and as citizens, and how we shape and are shaped by religion, sometimes at the same time. On today's show, we're focusing on a group of people struggling with a choice that puts their religious practice in conflict with political and economic realities shaping the world around them. It's a story that starts in the mountains of West Virginia. The community sits right on top of two rock formations, where huge deposits of natural gas are being extracted by fracking. That is, driving pressurized water deep into the rock to bring up the gas. It's a lucrative business, but also one that can bring environmental problems. They're trying to figure out how to maintain their way of life and their religious practice with the extraction efforts underway all around them. We want to tell this story because it captures how people negotiate their various overlapping identities, religious, economic, political, which don't always peacefully coexist. This community has been struggling financially for a long time, and the decision to allow fracking on their land has helped them to grow. But at the same time, it would seem to go against all the reasons they came to West Virginia and began this community in the first place. To pursue plain living and high thinking. To get away from it all. To return to the land. So we're walking up to the barn. It's January before sunrise. It's really cold. That is snow crunching under our feet. That's Molly Bourne. She's a reporter from West Virginia who's been following this story for years. And she's looking into this with Kevin Rose, a graduate student here at UVA, who's researching how religious communities think about resource extraction, like the fracking that's taking place across Appalachia. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Martine. Hey, Curtis. What do you have there? Bananas and... Yeah, bananas and flowers. The ghee lamp, you know, to perform the puja. Worship the cow. It's like a holy animal uh, in uh, Indian tradition. So they're ready. (laughs) As we're standing there, eight cows wander into the barn. Each day... Community members bring each cow offerings of spices and fruit. They feed them bananas and gently brush each one before they're milked. This practice is all about honoring the cows, showing appreciation for their bounty. The leadership says when they treat the cows in a loving way, their personalities come out. Just about a half mile away from these stalls is a construction site. After years of negotiation and prep work, a well will soon be drilled deep into the rock beneath this community to allow a company called American Petroleum Partners access to one of two enormous natural gas fields. How and why that well came to be drilled on land dedicated to serving the Hindu god Krishna? Well, that's a long story. Let's start with the Krishna side of things. These cows, and more than 200 people, are living in and around a commune in the northern panhandle of West Virginia about 70 miles southwest of Pittsburgh. 
It's called New Vrindavan, after a holy city in India where the Hindu god Krishna spent much of his childhood. And Krishna and cows go together. He's often depicted as a young cow herd. So cow protection, that is to say, giving these cows a good and happy life, is a key part of life in New Vrindavan. Members view living in close connection with the land and the cattle as following an ideal laid out in ancient Indian scriptures, an ideal that has been lost in modern life. New Vrindavan's founders believed that living in the industrialized 20th century was corrupt and soul-killing. The antidote was plain living and high thinking. That is, to live in harmony with the environment, to live simply. By doing that, coming closer to the divine. I think that the whole earth is sacred, you know? <laughs> this is Lalita Gopi. She and her husband work for the nonprofit here that's dedicated to cow protection in locally grown agriculture. And Nivrindavan is one protected area that was bought with the intention of keeping it extra sacred, you know, like just a, an oasis, like a place for people to come and remember the sacredness of the whole earth. This philosophy comes from the larger organization they're a part of, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, more commonly known as Hare Krishnas. That shorthand comes from a mantra that believers chant when they worship, repeating the names of Krishna. The movement's founder, Srila Prabhupada, was 70 years old when he sailed from India to New York in 1965 and brought this new Hindu movement along with him. He started preaching in New York soon after he arrived, but things really took off when he moved to San Francisco. At the time, the city was the center of the counterculture, full of people experimenting with almost everything, free love, drugs, and new ways of living. This is a Krishna Kirtan conducted by Swami A.C. Bhaktivedanta in a storefront near Kizar Stadium. The standard Judeo-Christian morals have just flown the coop. They're done for. One of the things that, that these young people are discovering is the quality of being holy. They're interested in, in the kirtan, the mantra singing. And Prabhupada and his followers weren't afraid to put things in terms that would appeal to San Francisco's hippies. There was even a Hare Krishna poster that read, Stay high forever. No more coming down. Practice Krishna consciousness. That's not to say that the Hare Krishna movement advocated sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Serious devotees had to change their lifestyles. They abstained from meat, alcohol, tobacco, and sex outside marriage, and they were expected to live for a while in an ashram, like the one at New Vrindavan. And everything we did, we did as service. We did for the Lord, we did for the pleasure of Srila Prabhupada. That was our goal, that was our motivation. That's Gabriel Freed. He moved to New Vrindavan nearly 40 years ago. Members were still building homes and learning how to farm. It wasn't always comfortable. My wife and I would be laying on the floor in our sleeping bags, 
and I've got this big wood stove. It's glowing red. It's so hot, and but not enough to actually really heat the place very well because it's essentially a, a trailer with no no insulation. So we would haul our water in buckets and bring it over to the house, and everything was mud. You know, this place was known for its mud, and you could lose a shoe in the mud. <laughs> It may not have been comfortable, but it was exactly what Srila Prabhupada had in mind for New Vrindavan. He urged his followers to live as simply as possible, to live a natural, healthy life without modern amenities, the kind of life that would be difficult in New York or San Francisco. And Gabriel Freed says despite the austerity, or maybe because of it, those years were filled with dynamic energy. And there was such an intense camaraderie and love just like in, in any other situation, people who uh, go to war together and they go through an intense experience and they have the austerity of, of going through battle, they're bonded. They're bonded for life. I had a lot of friends here, you know, after I'd been here for a little while, a whole bunch of us, we all had our first kids at the same time, you know, like we helped each other watch our kids. So it was a real, there was a real sisterhood and brotherhood also. Leela Shukadasi and her husband were members of a Hare Krishna temple in Toronto when they moved to the ashram in 1980, looking for a simpler life. It was really wonderful, actually. And we were all growing in Krishna consciousness. We were all really helping each other. And that's the kind of thing I had been craving, you know, a lot in my life, some kind of real support um, and real... Uh, loving community, and that's what I found. So how did the community end up in West Virginia in the first place? It all started with a letter from this mystic philosopher named Richard Rose. He sent it to an underground newspaper in San Francisco, offering up some of his land for people to practice their religion freely. Two Hare Krishna devotees saw the letter and got a 99-year lease on more than 100 acres of land. Remember, while Srila Prabhupada was recruiting new followers in cities, he believed the country could offer a simpler life, free of modern distractions like movies or nightclubs. It seemed a perfect fit. The idea was that followers would start a farming community that would eventually be self-sufficient. Members did more than farm. They also started building a home for Prabhupada, where he could stay during visits to the commune. Many were unskilled, but they say they had Krishna's guiding hand to help them build what would become one of the most iconic emblems of the movement and a pilgrimage destination for followers from around the world. It's called the Palace of Gold. I grew up not far from New Vrindavan, and I can tell you I've never seen anything like it. In the winter, when Kevin and I visited, you have these mountains all around. There's some snow. The trees are bare, and up on the hill, you just see this beautiful jewel box. It's lined with intricate stained glass windows, and it's covered in gold leaf. It's the most colorful thing for miles, and it seems wild that it's in the hills of West Virginia. It really is a beautiful spot. But from the beginning, New Vrindavan has struggled to sustain itself. At its height in the 1980s, about 400 people lived here, which made it the largest Hare Krishna community in the United States. This land was wild and rural. Farming was difficult. 
Prabhupada had also wanted New Vrindavan to become a pilgrimage site, and building the attractions that would get people to come was expensive. New Vrindavan was also facing serious new problems by the mid-80s. The current leader calls this period the Troubles. It's part of the history that some here would rather not dwell on, but it's hard to ignore. New Vrindavan's leader at that time was Swami Bhaktipad, and he was accused of sexually abusing and exploiting children and of ordering the murders of two of his followers who defied him. All of this had serious consequences for New Vrindavan. Bhaktipad was eventually excommunicated from the international governing body, and the community was disgraced in the eyes of the larger movement. Those that stayed, like Leela Shuka Dasi, remember it as a time of reckoning. In a lot of ways, it, uh, it was a cohesive factor in the community also. We had to reevaluate, well, what is Krishna consciousness anyhow? What am I doing here, and what do I want out of this? It wouldn't be the last time the community had to ask hard questions about its identity. It turned out that New Vrindavan was located right on top of not one, but two huge natural gas fields, fields that were finally able to be tapped via fracking. It was a topic of debate not just in New Vrindavan, but throughout the larger Hare Krishna community. The devotees here, they consulted with many other Hare Krishna devotees around the world, and, and different people said different things, you know. Some said, yes, we think that our spiritual master, Prabhupada, would take this as a boon, as a benediction, as a blessing. And other people would be like, are you kidding? <laughs> Prabhupada spoke against having uh, industry anywhere near the area as much as possible. And there's, you know, there's a lot of money involved, so it was uh, hard to resist, you know. This is just a new chapter in an old story. West Virginia has been defined by energy extraction, whether that's natural gas, coal, or timber, for hundreds of years. In fact, the first commercial coal mine in the state was opened in 1810, just 10 miles down the road from where New Vrindavan is now. These industries bring jobs, well-paying, but certainly dangerous. And they also bring environmental consequences, even devastation. In coal extraction, whole mountaintops can be removed. Trees are cut down to make way for equipment and roads. Knowing that they would start ripping apart the beautiful countryside is so beautiful here. It was kind of almost untouched. I mean, really, you know, West Wild, wonderful West Virginia. And it's like, you know, the Joni Mitchell song, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. That just reminds me of that. We're trying to minimize. All I can, I think all a person can do is minimize uh, their, like, footprint, they call it, on the earth. This whole gassing is the opposite of that. It's just greed, like, gone wild. No matter your beliefs, it can be difficult for locals to hold out when energy companies expand, especially if your neighbors have sold their rights. This is a juggernaut, and it's on its way in. It's happening. What can we do to protect ourselves? Because the drilling is coming. We are not going to stop this. Gabriel Freed has ended up being the liaison between gas companies and New Vrindavan. He's a welder, and he used to work for a gas company. He could speak the language. And he saw how many of their neighbors had already sold their rights to gas companies, often on terms he described as lousy. He says the companies were paying landowners pennies on the dollar, 
It had nothing in place to prevent noise or water pollution. We found out over 50% of the area was already leased with these very bad contracts. And we thought, can we put together a lease and language that will protect the land, will protect the water? Ultimately, the leadership decided to sell the mineral rights for hydraulic fracturing. We looked at everything we, and we said, okay, here are potentially four places you can drill. We picked areas that would have the lowest impact because had we not done that and had it all been fractured uh, as it was with all of the people around us, we would have ended up with a lot more drill sites, a lot more traffic, and a lot more disturbance to the lands. So far, the Hare Krishna community has made $8 million, most of that just in signing bonuses. The drilling hasn't begun just yet. I mean, there had to have been a couple of times where I questioned, you know, is this, is this just too painful to Mother Earth? And, and am I, you know, am I being a, a brute? But I have to say, we really looked at this in such depth and from so many different angles. And ultimately, we can see that what we did, we can look back now and say, yes, this was the right decision. Because if, had we not done this, we, we would have been taken severe advantage of. The money they received has been poured back into New Vrindavan, particularly the fading Palace of Gold. Members have been using the signing bonus to restore it. And during the summer when the sun is filtering through these beautiful windows, you know, very nice, yeah? Okay. Vrindavan so Palika agreed to give us a tour of the palace. Uh, and make She's 67, grew up in East Africa, with, uh, and moved to New Vrindavan after living in Dallas for several years. We talked about improvements to the complex. There's new apartments for residents, and they fixed up the ornate wall around the palace. But we also talked to her about the drilling that made it all possible. So don't get caught up so much with drilling, because in order to survive, we have to do this. I'm not in management. I don't have to run the place. I don't have to worry about paying the bills. So who am I to make questions and judge them? Now, see, the thing is that the, the drilling is going on, therefore they have money. Now they are making all these um, renovations. She referenced this era in human history that community members believe we're in right now. And really, with the Kali Yuga, we don't have many, many opportunities, because in, as Kali Yuga progresses, there will be less and less temples. Kevin, can you shed some light on this? Yeah, so various forms of Hinduism conceptualize time in this cycle of four eras. And the one we're in now, the Kali Yuga, is an inherently corrupt one. To some, there's a sense that no individual action could change this awful time we live in. The awfulness has been preordained. So on the one hand, they want to live lightly on the earth. And on the other hand, they have a theology of time, the idea of Kali Yuga, this more fatalistic view that these aren't good days.
maybe that is what Krishna wants and I think they are just trying to make the best of the bad bargain and it's a bad bargain you know we heard that phrase over and over best of a bad bargain in a way you could say that's the big ethical issue in Hinduism and many other religious traditions if the world is corrupt how can you live a life that is not corrupt how can you be good to other people to animals or to the earth if you're stuck with a bad bargain from the beginning One answer for the people that live here is to put the money into something they think will last, New Vrindavan and the Palace of Gold. Vrindavan Palika, the woman we talked to in the palace, she's right. They have been able to do a lot of major repairs. The wall outside the Palace of Gold got a major facelift. They have built new guest lodging, a yoga retreat area, apartments are being planned, all things that are pointing to a new future for the community. The leadership says visitor numbers and membership are on a steady rise. They've spent almost all of the $8 million signing bonus, and more money will come once drilling begins. So I have to imagine it's hard to provide protection for cows or to lead a yoga retreat with all those trucks in the background. <laughs> right. In that scenario, you can see both sides of the bad bargain, right? On the one hand, they're getting the money they need. But on the other hand, they're losing the very tranquility they rely on. No, it's a good point. But the community has been able to force the extraction industry to respect at least some of its boundaries. Followers say the workers have been friendly and respectful to them, and the companies have honored the community's requests to minimize traffic during holy times. There's no doubt the money that fracking has brought in has helped to stabilize the community. We went to the temple for the 5 a.m. kirtan. It's part of the daily worship service. And on this day, there were about two dozen devotees reciting the Hare Krishna mantra. Running the temple takes effort. It's an ornate space with several shrines to Krishna and one to the group's founder, Srila Prabhupada. Devotees dress the deities each day, and there's a special dressing room with hundreds of outfits and pieces of jewelry for them. The community also spends tens of thousands of dollars each year on fresh flowers to adorn them. We sat down with the temple president, Jaya Krishna Das, in his office. He's Swiss, and he came to New Vrindavan from Belgium to lead the community. He said something that was really striking to both of us. For me, it's a natural gift of God that we have these natural resources in New Vrindavan. I, I came to the conclusion, yeah, actually, it's a gift of Krishna, um, it's maybe the one reason why New Vrindavan was created in this place, which in North America is so big, we could have uh, created New Vrindavan in so many other places, which have been maybe much more favorable for uh, growing food, uh, tending cows. Um, but there is one reason that we ended here. There may be many reasons, but speculating this could be one of the reasons, you know. Yeah, he basically said they'll be able to develop the community in the way their founder envisioned much faster with these profits. I think it helps us, these funds, they help us to develop New Vrindavan in the way um, our founder has given us the instructions much quicker. And this in itself will um, attract uh, more um, members, new people. But I, um, I can uh, understand uh, members of our society and outsiders who are very skeptical 
to this exploration. Um, that's, that's legitimate that somebody would not like to, to move here. I hear Jaya Krishnadas being very down-to-earth about his choice here. The fracking was inevitable, and it was unclear if the community would survive, especially if it decided to hold fast to its environmental ethic to such an extent that it resisted fracking altogether. I, I think that's that's right, and even even him, uh, as as the the most positive of all the people we spoke to, saying this is a gift from Krishna. In all our conversations, we saw that that work happening of this was an inevitable choice we had to make how are we going to interpret this with the religious resources we have to to make it meaningful to sort of sustain our purpose or be able to carry our purpose as a community forward yeah i I mean i think that's what's so interesting about this whole thing and 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 not unlike what a lot of communities struggle with actually that's another question i had for you kevin how is this like or unlike other communities that are facing similar issues do you see sort of some of the reasoning resonating across religious lines i i do i think that the the resonance is the way in which there's a sort of general sense of people feeling like it's out of our hands we have to work within this existing political economy there's mm-hmm. there's nothing we can do to sort of overcome that so we have to find ways to to establish some patterns of faithfulness according to our religious traditions. So there's an in, this environmental institute in Michigan called Asabel Institute that's become sort of the main center for evangelical theology on the environment and they discovered oil on their land in 1975 and view it as sort of God's intervention or God's plan in their history and then the oil let them become this national institute um, to produce all this evangelical environmental theology. So for them, it's similar to what Jaya says, like this, this is maybe why we were placed on this land by God, so we could discover this oil. I wonder if Jaya Krishnadasa's message here helps them to prepare for that eventuality. He tells a new story about how they got to be there and the rightness of them being there. And he also gives them a sense of greater purpose that allows people to bear with the sacrifices that they all feel they made. Let me ask you, Molly, uh, as a person who's from this part of the world, do you feel sympathy for the conundrum that these folks in New Vrindavan find themselves? Um, what we talked about earlier, the tale as old as time, the, the extractive forces at play in West Virginia. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that here. I think knowing people who've had to make that decision for their own families, I can't imagine having to make that decision um, for the future of a place that, you know, we have to remember this is a holy site. This is a pilgrimage site. People come here from all over the world. They experience something here. It is a special place. They believe it is worth saving. You know, if, if the only way to do that is if the only way to forward that and advance that is to, um, is to enter into these agreements. I, you know, I, I think it's a strong argument. Yeah, and it's a way to actively interpret what's happening. In the wake of the fracking, they hear Krishna's message differently. So where does this leave us? For a little while longer, active drilling is the thing of the future. In back of the barn, the cows need feeding and milking and affection every day. On our visit, Lalita Gopi was milking the cows with her husband. The well down the road was never far from her mind. It, it is much harder to live here. It's, you know, it really took a 
big toll. Like uh, this is a place of nature, and people are connected to the earth and farming, and so that it was just like, oh no, you know, everybody's very, very torn up about it. But she was still hopeful for the future. I have faith that we can live through it. You know, we can get through this short time in history, and this will remain a holy place for hopefully thousands of years. You know. Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. Our program and communications manager is Ashley Duffalo. Today's show was reported by Molly Bourne and Kevin Rose. You can find more of Molly's work on Twitter at Molly underscore Bourne. Music in this episode came from Jazar and Blue Dot Sessions. For more on our work, head to Religion Lab. Dot Virginia.edu or follow us on Twitter at the Religion Lab. <laughs>